0: everyone so to begin our time together today we're going to read from the book of James if you'd like to turn there with me we're going to be in James 1 all right James 1 16 through 18 says don't be deceived my brothers and sisters every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows by his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creation. Thanks, Ellie. Well, for those of you who don't know me, I'm BJ. I'm a staff pastor here, and I get up here every now and then, especially when Mike is on vacation, getting some much needed rest. Hi. You waving at me? Am am I not on? I am? Okay. You're just saying hi? Cool. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) So my enthusiastic youth leaders, um, who like me, is kind of coming off of a um, kind of a mountaintop, a mountaintop moment right now. Um, We just spent an entire summer prepping for a summer camp. Um, And what our prep looks like is a lot of intentional time in prayer for individuals. We, We print out the list of kids who plan on coming, kids who we hope will um, come to our camp, and we pray for them, and we pray specific things over the passage that we're going to be studying through. And our hopes and our dreams are all pinned on God doing a work. God doing a work in hearts. And so there's this fear that leads right up to camp of, is God going to do a work in hearts this year, again, like he did last year? um, Because we can't control that. Uh, We can preach, we can teach, we can come alongside, we can disciple, we can love, we can care. And if God doesn't do the work, nothing happens. Well, God did a work. God did an awesome work. Um, The five that were baptized up here, uh, about half of them were from summer camp, um, who were this close to getting baptized at summer camp. There was two more at summer camp who got baptized, and there's one more who's going to get baptized when the right individuals are all present in the building. With us, and so there's this mountaintop moment that we're coming off of, youth leaders, youth pastor, all alike. Coming off of that, um, I don't have a dopamine spike. So, you guys have ever seen a dopamine scale moment? It reminds you of studies on how your level graph. You have these spikes where you come up to top, you have a great moment, and what you can guarantee after that dopamine spike, that great moment, is that there will be an equal dip. The brain, that's just how the brain works. Removes dopamine, flushes it out, and there's this dip that happens. And so there's this natural feeling after a mountaintop moment where you're down in the valley. You're down in the valley again. That's kind of what it feels like coming off of summer camp, an incredible first week back last week with baptisms, um, where God just poured out, continued the pouring out from summer camp into the congregation Um, us together as a family. And this may, in fact, be one of the most unlikely, perfect passages for us to dive into with that in mind. After last week's baptisms and summer camp. This is an unlikely and yet perfect passage to dive into. You see, last week saw Jesus and three of his disciples up on a mountain and the reason they were up there was for Jesus to be transfigured, transfigured. And it would be fair to say that in more ways than one, this transfiguration really was a mountaintop experience. As a pun, of course, because I'm a youth pastor, it's what you got to do. Um, I'm also a father, so that comes hand in hand. But it really was a mountaintop experience in the emotional and spiritual sense as well. Not just in the literal On the mountain, Jesus got to experience something that only comes from being completely holy from the inside out. From the inside out. Something that we get a taste of here on earth the moment we choose to follow Christ. The moment we choose to follow Christ, we get this taste of being made holy from the inside out. Still burdened by flesh, and yet we've been made holy in Christ. Paul explains in his second letter to the Corinthians chapter 5. Well, second letter in our Bible. There's other letters that he wrote. But second letter of Corinthians 5, 16 through 17, Paul says this. From now on, then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. New creation, being washed. We get to experience what it means to enter into God's presence without the burden of condemnation. That feeling is quite often what inspires us to be baptized. Mountaintop experience, this joy. There's a problem, though, the experience of being washed, made new in Christ. We then turn around and find the world that we're in still very, very broken. Still very, very broken. And we find that that world is still waiting for us as we come out of the water. If we read further in 2 Corinthians, Paul explains why we remain after being made holy. What's the reason God leaves us here? In verse 18, it says, Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God has reconciled was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead in Christ on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Given a new heart and experiencing the presence of God, our very souls begin to long for the full and final transformation that is promised. When God will give us this new body, and bring us into one spirit, into one spirit, away from the sins, the weight of the world. Yet we are left here with a purpose and a duty. And this is the ultimate test of what I think is the perfect test for an adult, which is, which is the test of delayed gratification. Delayed gratification. Gratification. It is the test of adulthood. That is the test of maturity, the ability to delay gratification and rest in that. Jesus knows how we feel because he did it first. He did it first. He knows what it's like to come off that mountaintop and dive right into the valley, back into a world that is completely wrecked by sin and unbelief. He did it first. And today we get to see a very special example of it. A very spe- special example of how he did that. You see, Jesus comes off the mountain today to find total chaos. Total chaos. Chaos in the presence of the very apostles that Jesus is going to be leaving behind after his resurrection. Recall that Jesus has been revealing his ultimate purpose to the apostles. That was why he took them to Caesarea Philippi. That's what I spoke on last time I was up here. That being leaves in. So, say we're going to have to lead the early out, Jesus, present. So, they get a little early test. And it turns into total chaos. Total chaos. Look at our passage this morning. We're in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. We're going to begin in verse 14. We're in Mark chapter 9, the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. We're going to read the first couple of verses. Of our passage this morning, verse 14. When they came to the disciples, they, meaning Jesus and the apostles that he took up on the mount with him, when they came to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and scribes disputing with them. When the whole crowd saw him, they were amazed and ran to greet him. So here are his chosen apostles, completely surrounded and overwhelmed by none other than God's own chosen people. You got the scribes, fellow Jews. These are God's chosen people. And now you have Jesus' chosen apostles, totally surrounded by them. These are men whose, these scribes, whose job it was to study God's word, understand it, and explain it. Knowledge of God's word was completely their responsibility and their job. This is what they were um, trained to do. This is what their whole life was geared towards, was directed at studying God's Word, understanding, and explaining it. Roughly speaking, these Jewish men's tasks were equiv- equivalent to um, that of Spurgeon's, Morgans, Wearsby's, our more modern commentaries that we have today. And tragically, these Jewish men who being tasked with knowing God's words, these Jewish men who were tasked with knowing God's words seem to have one really big problem. They spent so much time getting to know the words of God that they never got around to knowing God. They knew his words, they didn't know him turns out head knowledge without personal knowledge doesn't lead to belief. Head knowledge without personal experience doesn't actually lead to belief. That pesky old experience still seems to be a necessary element for true relationship. And this hasn't changed. It's the same today where we are right here, right now for the church today in our current area. This is still the same. If we spend our whole lives in Bible study, reading about God, but never getting to know God personally, then we will end up like the person who purchases a VI pass for a band, but then never goes back to meet the band. Knowing about somebody can be exciting, even useful. I spend a lot of time studying famous persons in history. It can actually be a lot of fun. But how close can you get to someone that you only read about? Read a lot about Hitler. I don't know Hitler at all. (laughs) I know he's German. I'm German. I don't know him. I know about him. Thank goodness. How close can you really get to someone that you only read about? The scribes couldn't get to know God's heart by merely reading about him, and neither can we. Neither can we. See, there's this turn that has to happen in relationship, our personal own walk with the Lord. This relationship that we have has to be outside of just reading scripture. It has to be outside of just hearing what others have to say about God. And it has to be just outside of just what our family believes We have to know God personally. Scripture does indeed command us to study to show ourselves approved. But keep in mind, God also says the sheep know my voice. The sheep know my voice. Jesus taught us to call God our father in heaven. Now, this is a bold statement, but based on that commandment from Jesus himself, the guy who did it perfect, I can only conclude that if if it still feels weird to call God Father and mean it, and actually mean it, then we don't know him well enough yet. I'm not talking salvation here, saying in your relationship With God, the father, if it feels weird to call him father or dad, however you're used to calling your father, father, if it feels weird to call him that and actually mean those words, talking to him as if he was your father, if it feels weird, you're not close enough with him yet in your walk. Most likely, I would say that we probably aren't following and trusting his direction for our lives yet. Following someone's direction in life naturally creates familiarity and fondness. Assuming the direction is correct and good. (laughs) Following direction that leads you astray is the opposite. But because we get a full faith in God's direction, I would say that if you aren't that close with him, you're probably not actually listening to what he's calling you to do. So that's the scribes lack of belief but they're not the only ones present in this chaos they come down to a whole crowd There's scribes there's apostles there's a father there's a son and upon seeing Jesus this whole crowd runs to meet him the scribes they probably were feeling a bit victorious. Reveling in the apostles' weakness, as we'll see, there was weakness amongst the apostles. They're probably enjoying the fact that these apostles they disagree with are struggling. The people probably just excited to see the main attraction. Fancy Is just the main attraction, where's the top guy? The apostle <laughs> Here he comes. This is a mess, and he knows how to fix it. He walked on water once. He calmed the waves once. Probably just very, very relieved to have the pressure off their shoulders. But Jesus, at this point, doesn't even know yet what the commotion is all about. He sees the commotion. He arrives. He doesn't seem to even know what's going on. And it must have felt something like, coming home from the best dinner date you've ever had to find the kids all shouting at each other. (laughs) Total chaos. That's probably how Jesus felt walking up. What is going on? In verse 16, he asks them, what are you arguing with them about? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak. Notice, brought not to the disciples, not the apostles, but to Jesus. I brought my son to you. Notice also what the man calls Jesus. What did he just call Jesus? Teacher. What did he call Jesus? Teacher. This man is surrounded by teachers. Surrounded by scribes, if a teacher's all you need, why are you searching out this Jesus? If you're searching out this Jesus and he is something more special, why'd you just call him teacher? Somehow this man knows that Jesus is different from a mere teacher. He knows that, yet his hardened heart doubts His hardened heart applies to Jesus, the title, teacher. It's not a false title. Jesus is a teacher. But this man's not looking for a teacher. He's looking for a healer. He's looking for somebody with the authority to command evil spirits. That's far more powerful than a mere teacher. But his hardened heart says, teacher. Or is it perhaps instead merely desperation for his son, having exhausted all other options that drove him to give Jesus a try? Maybe he really does think Jesus is just a teacher, and desperation says, I haven't tried this yet. How strange that we humans haven't changed in the last 2,000 years. Most of us came to the Lord either out of desperation, <laughs> most of us desperation, honestly, or of hardened heart that he had to soften. Whatever the case may be, he goes on to explain in verse 18 this father, speaking of his son, who he loves dearly, says, Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth, grinds his teeth, and becomes rigid. And I asked your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. So the father does ask the disciples. He came for Jesus. He says, I came to bring my son to you, but he does actually end up asking the disciples. So I'm starting to lean towards uh, desperation more than hardened heart. And who wouldn't be desperate? That's a devastating description of your own son. That's a really devastating description of your own son. Of course, his father is desperate. Jesus' reply is heavy. Jesus' reply to this desperate father is very, very heavy. In verse 9, he replied to them, you unbelieving generation. Now I want to point out, it says reply to them. This is the whole crowd. He's looking at this crowd, this chaos, this mob of apostles, scribes, Father, son, you unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him to me. Bring me that boy. As heavy as a statement as this seems, I want you to consider the consequences of what's happening here. The consequences of what is happening in the midst of this chaotic Crowd. Here we find a helpless child being thrashed about for years, standing in the midst of three groups of adults the boy's father, a group of scribes, and the saddest one of all, Jesus' own apostles. There are three strengths present in this crowd. Three strengths present in this crowd. There's more than that, but three that I want to point out here. But they are divided to the detriment of this boy. You have a father who has love for his son. You have scribes who have knowledge of God's word. So you have relationship with Jesus himself for the Son and, and personal relationship with Jesus himself. Not only have they not been able to put it all together for the sake of the least of these, by the way, this child, the least of these, they are in fact fighting against each other. It's easy for us to start to look at groups in scripture and say, here's the scribes, they're the enemy. (laughs) Here's the apostles, they're the good guys. And here's the boy and the father, and they're the victim. And we can kind of see it that way. Well, what Jesus sees is a whole crowd of eternal souls. A whole crowd of the image bearers of God himself, created in God's image. A whole crowd of that. God's perfect creation in total chaos and they are in fact fighting against each other jesus statement here is indeed righteous indignation he's looking at this helpless boy being thrashed about with all of these adults surrounding him who have had access to the scriptures who have been made in god's image so they have love naturally built into them and they have a whole crowd of apostles have personal relationship and experience with Jesus and here's this boy suffering sin completely saturating unbelief completely saturating this entire group but Jesus is on the scene now Jesus is on the scene now and there's at least one involved party who fully believes in the power of Jesus. Check this out, verse 20. So they brought the boy to him. <laughs> when the Spirit saw him, it immediately threw the boy into convulsions. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. <laughs> oh boy. Somebody knows who this Jesus is, and somebody knows the power this Jesus contains. In the midst of all these people, the demon is just chilling. He's just watching these feeble apostles, arguing with these scribes, and this father pleading for his son. This demon's just sitting back, watching the chaos, enjoying the show. But then in walks the guy. The guy. The guy who resisted Satan for 40 days and prevailed. The guy who cast an entire legion into some pigs. (laughs) Jesus walks in and the bass just drops. Boom. For this poor poor demon if demons can soil their pants this one's looking for a hoodie to wrap around his waist you know like he's like i want anybody to know just happened in the midst of unbelief evil could rest easy and enjoy the show in the midst of unbelief Evil could rest easy and enjoy the show, but then in walks one who loves the kid, knows God's word inside and out, and doesn't just know the Father, is one with the Father. Evil can no longer rest easy. Love, knowledge, and experience in perfect harmony that boy's never been safer in his life not even since the day he was in his mother's womb this demon knows he is helpless before jesus so in his vile wickedness look what he does he determines to inflict his torture one last time and once again we like to divide groups into different categories and jesus is standing here the image of the invisible god all things were made by him and through him perfect creation and he looks and even the demon was once a perfect creation and jesus is now sitting and saturating in abject broken creation This demon knows that he's helpless before Jesus and determines to inflict one last torture, one last time. Jesus, however, is unfazed, like a seasoned ER physician. He calmly asks the Father in verse 21, How long has this been happening to him? The Father responds with, From childhood. From childhood. This boy is still a child, so what does from childhood mean? Literally means from infancy. I don't know if this child has ever experienced peace from infancy? Tormented from the wicked evil in this world? If you have a kid that that hits different. In verse 22, he goes on, and many times it has thrown him into fire or water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus' question to his father is a very condemning one in a way. How long has this been happening? In other words, how long have you allowed your son to suffer because of your unbelief? I know this sounds harsh, and I may be reading into the text a little bit. Perhaps I'm reading more than what is there. But consider all the historical events that this man had access to. Over and over again, we see in scriptures with men and women cry out to God with genuine hearts and God and miracles. Women are given children in old age, men are given impossible victory in battles. Over and over again, God's power is granted to individuals and the nation simply through prayer and belief. God just gives it. And this boy has been suffering in this way since infancy. This boy has been suffering needlessly. Jesus would have been righteous to condemn the whole crowd and walk away. He would have been right and true to condemn every single one of them, turn his back and walk away. But our Christ's patient, and mercy is just built different. It's just not the same as ours. Look what he does instead in verse 23. Jesus said to him, speaking to the father, if you can, everything is possible for the one who believes Immediately the father of the boy cried out. I do believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. And here we find that internal knowledge that Jesus was different than a mere teacher. Something inside this man. He knew that Jesus was different than a mere teacher. And that little bit of knowledge burst forth by sheer will. By sheer will, he longs, says, I do believe help my unbelief. I know you're true, but there's something in me that's not believing completely. Would you help it? Jesus masterfully and gracefully eased that seed of belief out of this desperate father. Jesus could have simply cast the demon out and walked away. Been done with it. But I think he is setting up the boy with a father that will no longer be totally helpless. Now don't get me wrong. This father never had the power. This father will never have the power. He is setting up this father to know where to go for the power. Jesus doesn't give this family a fish. He teaches them to fish. What I find the most interesting about this passage is how Jesus removes this demon. Verse 25, when Jesus saw that a crowd was quickly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. So what's so interesting about that? What's different about that? Well, it's cheap. Let's do this. Let's cheat and look ahead at verse 28 and 29. After he had gone into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? Probably a little bit stressed, probably a lot of bit embarrassed, probably their faith a little weaker. And he told them this kind can come out by nothing but prayer. This kind can come out by nothing but prayer. Nothing but prayer. How did Jesus cast the demon out? Verse 25, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Jesus cast this demon out with a command, not with a prayer now it's fair to say that jesus could have prayed in his head while making this command all in one moment but i don't think that's the point here at all why not because when jesus prays the text tells us so over and over in the text we've read examples about jesus looking up to heaven before healing the sick praying over the fish and the loaves The text has been very pointed when describing how Jesus performs miracles and casts out demons. So why is it recorded that Jesus used a command, but then told his apostles only through prayer? I think a better question is in the answer itself. Why would God limit the disciples power in this case? Why would God choose to limit their ability to cast this demon out to prayer? Surely God could grant them the power to command the demon out instead of pray. Surely God could grant them that power. Obviously, from the text, Jesus had that power. So why is it suddenly so important that they go to prayer with this one? I think that brings us all the way back around to remember why they were in Caesarea Philippi in the first place. Jesus took them to Caesarea Philippi to tell them that he would be crucified, buried, that he would resurrect, and that he would then ascend. Leaving who left behind? All the apostles. Jesus has already explained his plan. I am going to be leaving you. Physically, yes, I'm going to send my helper, but I will physically be gone. And you are going to start. Well, Jesus starts the early church. I'm going to use you to grow the early church. This is his whole plan. So why turn them to prayer now? Because they're going to have to turn to prayer really soon. Really, really soon. All throughout the gospel that we have read so far, Jesus has dealt with every healing on an individual basis. No two healings have looked alike. He has cast out demons in different ways and with different methods. Jesus is a very personal God when it comes to miracles. And as it turns out, he's a very personal God in the way that he gifts us, empowers us, us strength, gives us strength. It doesn't look the same for all of us. We're not all gifted with the same strengths. We're not all gifted with the same um, various powers. God deals with us individually, one-on-one. And sometimes the way that I am to accomplish something looks totally different than the way somebody else, my friends, my family are to accomplish something. Because God is working in our hearts individually. And the only way that we're going to fully understand what he has called us to and gifted us to is in prayer. It is in prayer, prayer with the Father, prayer with God. We see the conclusion to our story. We see the effect that Jesus has on this demon. We don't get to see the effect that he has on the family. We don't get to see the effect that it has on the apostles necessarily or the scribes. But in verse 26, it tells us then it came out. You know, the effect it had on the demon shrieking and throwing him into terrible convulsions. The boy became like a corpse so that many said he's dead. But Jesus, taking him by the hand, raised him and stood, and he stood up. Jesus takes him by the hand as he's laying there as if he's dead. One last torture survived. Potentially the first time this boy has ever been clear-headed his entire life, and he hits the ground as if he's dead. Jesus, when he takes him by the hand, the word for raised here used all throughout scripture over and over and over and over again. It is referencing to someone being raised from the dead. And yet the context here does not show this child being raised from the dead, but I think there's a beautiful parallel happening here. This boy has been raised from the ground as if from the dead raised by None other than Jesus himself raised up, given new life, given new breath. Something that could have been done by the father, by the scribes, by the apostles. Not by their own might. They all had access to the solution for this kid. Passage hits a little different after getting home from a week-long summer camp. Our church is filled with some of the, just the best kids I've ever met. I always say that every year, but it's because it's true every year, and the same kids keep coming back, so it hasn't changed. (laughs) We have the best kids here. We've reached adulthood. There are responsibility. There are responsibility. And we have access to this might, this power. And it's so simple. Just believe that God is who he says he is. And have relationship with him. It's all that God has asked us. Believe on his name. Start walking with him. Every adult in this room has the responsibility to not allow the least of these to go through life like that. We are surrounded by opportunities. We don't have any kids that I'm aware of, (laughs) demon-possessed, foaming at the mouth, jumping into fires. We have a whole bunch of kids who every year at camp, I'm amazed at the struggle that they have going on up here and in here. Kids from incredible homes. Because it turns out life's hard. It turns out that life's really, really, really hard. And who those kids have to turn to is God number one, but also the fellowship that's been put around them. All the adults standing in the room with all the ability, every single person here. This summer camp, for comparison, I was the pastor in charge, summer camp. But I was surrounded by a group of adult leaders. 99% of the ministry, I just made that number up, but I guarantee it's true. 99% 99% of the ministry that happened at that camp did not come from me. There is no special ability for the pastor to reach 50 kids. There is no special ability for the Sunday morning preacher to reach 150 congregants. We are the body we stand before the Lord on our own two feet and we've been empowered by Jesus with everything we need. We've been called to use it. Final two verses, we uh, cheated. (laughs) So spoilers are already in full force. But after healing the boy, relieving the father of his terrible struggle and growing his faith, giving the the scribes one more opportunity to see the power of God, to believe what the Messiah is here to do. Jesus then turns to his apostles. He has a very close relationship with them. They get to walk into the back room with him. And in verse uh, 28 says, After he had gone into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? You could read into this all their thoughts. We've been empowered. We walked into villages. We've been casting demons out. Why couldn't we drive it out? The moment you were gone, we fell apart. And he told them, This can come out by nothing but prayer. Jesus sets them up for the next stage of their ministry. The ministry that he has called them to, he sets them up for the next stage and says, prepare yourselves in a sense through prayer. Speak with God, the father, go to him in prayer, ask you shall receive. They don't even know that this is what he's setting them up for yet. It's not that the hints haven't been there. And by hints, I mean he told them, hey, I'm going to die, and then then it's just you. Um, Sending a helper. (laughs) They don't get it, but he's setting them up. I have the worship team come on up. As we close. God started the work in our hearts that transformed our hearts from that of stone to that of flesh. He's the one who began that work, started it in our hearts. That only continues in growth. When we step outside, step outside of all the helping hands that has brought us this way and choose to follow after God in the midst of the valley. The only person who goes with you everywhere is God. The Holy Spirit inside you is there everywhere. Is the only person we have access to at all times in every place. And as we step into the valley. And the mountaintop experience starts to fade out and die out. We are left with a responsibility. To gain knowledge to increase love and to walk in relationship with God, the father it's our responsibility. Nobody here has a higher responsibility. Nobody here has a lower responsibility. It's our responsibility as the church to walk out these doors into the valley, recognize that we're in the valley, and it's something we set up at camp a whole bunch, and it holds true. Uh, I think Trevor Zaychek for this, I'm sure I pronounced his last name wrong. Some thoughts are toxic, some are just hard. Some of them are just hard, and you have to know that it's going to be okay as you work through them. As we step into the valley, it's not that we stepped into the wrong place, it's that we stepped into a hard place. God is still there and he's still available to us. That doesn't stop off the mountaintop. That's when the rubber meets the road and the work begins. And that's for us. We walk out today, begins again. I'm going to pray a portion of the Lord's prayer over us this morning. Um, And in your hearts, if these are words, concepts that you don't come to the Lord with often, I want to encourage you to hear the words, understand them, and begin to apply them to your own personal walk in prayer. Lord, Father in heaven, we as a body come before you with the heart's desire that your name would be honored as holy in our congregation, in our kids' lives, in our community. We long for your kingdom to come here on earth. We know how good it is. We know and we don't know. Lord, help our unbelief. Our heart is that your will would be done in our kids' lives, in our community, in our church. Your will, not ours. How you would get things done. We long to do things that way. Lord, would you supply us for that? And I want to ask for a special supply for any in this room who hasn't asked you for supply today. You called it daily bread for a reason. Would you supply anyone in this room who hasn't asked for your supply yet in wisdom, in love, in knowledge, righteousness, peace? You supply our physical needs, supply everything. Lord, we know that we are part of We are part of the broken creation, made new only by you. We see our own faces in this story. We see our own doubt, our own lack of belief. When in the valley we recognize, would you forgive us as a group? For the least of those who are struggling because of our unbelief, would you forgive us? As we forgive others, their their wrongs against us come in humility before you and ask that you guide our steps not into temptation, the things that distract us from you, the things that guide us away from you, but deliver us from that enemy. That first twist of your perfect creation with all the evil intent to inflict harm, would you deliver us from that by the power of your might. Lead us as a congregation this morning and be honored by our worship. We ask in your name.